The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Let's pray and let's get into God's Word this morning then as we look at the, the rest of the story of Esther. Lord, we ask you for the presence of your Spirit to open our eyes to see um, the lessons that you want us to understand and to learn through this story of Esther. And so help us as we grapple with this doctrine of your sovereignty to understand what it means to truly believe in our hearts that you control all things and that nothing happens by coincidence or accident, but everything is ordered by you according to your sovereign will. And so give us um, hearts of faith that can really believe that and then to walk in that truth and the way that we would conduct ourselves and the choices that we would make in our life. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, as I've been saying through this Esther series, uh, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God really looms large in the story of Esther. And when we say the sovereignty of God, what we're in essence meaning is that everything happens in accordance to God's will. Now, I've been saying these kind of phrases a lot this last month as we've been in the series in Esther, but um, I, I think I need to clarify something before we go on. And it's, it, it raises this immediate question then, whether you're a believer or you are not a believer, to say, um, well, if you're saying everything happens according to God's will, does that mean that God wants people to get cancer? Does it mean that God wants a person to be killed by a drunk driver? Um, every crime, every accident, is that somehow God's desire when you're t- saying that everything is in his control? Well, I would say no. When we talk about God's will, we can at one level talk about his perfect will. Sometimes we can use the word his wish. And what we mean by that is God's best desires for us. Um, but here's the point, is when we talk about his perfect will or his wish, even though that is his perfect desire for us, it doesn't necessarily mean that that is what's going to happen. I'll give you one example of this in Scripture itself. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, that's God's perfect will. He doesn't want a single soul to die. But his desire is that every single person in this world would repent and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean everyone will be saved, does it? That's because we live in a fallen world in which we have free will and in which there is sin. And so in the brokenness of a sinful world, we can also talk about God's undesired will or sometimes what is known as his permissive will. This refers to the things that God does decree will happen even though they may not be in agreement with what his wishes are in a sense of what his perfect will would be. In other words, the way that God governs 
his world is that he allows certain things to happen even though that's not necessarily the perfect outcome that he may wish. The story of Esther is filled with moral ambiguities and failures, as we've already seen. Esther compromises her identity as God's chosen people as a Jew, breaking the laws of Moses so that she could live the good life in the king's palace. The threatened genocide of the Jews can all be traced back to the stubborn pride of Mordecai, who refused to bow to Haman. Haman's own stubborn pride causes him to try to exterminate an entire nation of people because of the insult of one man. And now here is the question is, did God want all this to happen? Is that what God wanted? Well, he didn't wish these things to happen, and yet in his sovereign plan, he uses even the brokenness and sin of our lives to accomplish his ultimate purposes. That is what we mean when we said that it is all under the ultimate will of God, is that even in our sin, even in our failures, even in a broken world, God can nevertheless accomplish his purposes in our life. One of the most important themes in this book of Esther that we've been unpacking is the hiddenness of God. Why does God seem so often distant from us why is his presence so often hidden? The story of Esther, as we pointed out, uh, takes place in this period of Israel's history known as the exile, when the Israelites were deported to Babylon, which then eventually came under Persian rule. And it was a time when in the Old Testament, hardly a single miracle is recorded. There's hardly a single account of God speaking his voice into the life of a person. It was a time of spiritual crisis for the Israelites. Is God still with us or has he abandoned us? Are we on our own? And although, as I pointed out, the name of God is never mentioned in the book, as the plot unfolds in the book of Esther, it draws us closer and closer to this inescapable conclusion that even in his apparent hiddenness, God is always there. He is everywhere. He is always in control of everything that is happening. And every choice that Queen Esther and Mordecai makes in this story hinges on whether they believe that truth or not. And I would argue that the same could be said of our lives as well. It is hard to overstate the importance of this doctrine of God's sovereignty, of what it means to trust that God is in control of our lives. It will have a profound impact on the choices that you make when you come to these forks in the road. Do I really believe that God is in control of this? Do I really believe that there is a higher purpose to these events that are unfolding in my life? Maybe it will be a critical juncture in your career. Maybe it will be about whether or not you give up on your marriage. Maybe it will be facing a temptation that you're tired of fighting all these years. And you wonder, do I just give in? Do I just live for this? I think it's a bit like sitting right on the cliff's edge, you know? And it's like, if you lose sight of God and his higher purposes for your life, the free fall that it sends you on is really pretty terrifying, isn't it? 
Do I really believe that there is a plan here that God is unfolding? This is the descent of the psalmist confessing his struggles in Psalm 73. And taking excerpts from that, it says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High have know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. My heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. As a worship leader, Asaph gave up everything to faithfully serve his God until one day he woke up and wasn't sure he made the right choice. And it's telling that during this season of doubt in his life where he lost sight of God and his purposes, he describes his state of mind as like that of an animal. Because you see, when we lose that perspective of faith, it really can best be described as an animal existence. When there is no higher meaning, no, no redemptive purposes for the things we're going through, then it's just about grabbing whatever you can in this life, about enjoying the moment and living for pleasure. Because in truth, as far as you know, that's all there is. What more higher purpose is there for suffering? And I think the truth is that is the struggle that Esther faced. She was confronted with a decisive moment in her life when she was called to demonstrate the most foundational belief she had about the purpose of her life. And she faltered. She struggled. You see, after years of hiding her identity, her Jewishness from the others and living in the luxury of the king's palace, she began to forget who she was. And so even facing the destruction of her own people, the truth, the honest truth, is that she didn't want to get involved at first. She said, I can't help you, Mordecai. There's nothing I can do here. So finally her cousin Mordecai confronts her in Esther 4, verse 14, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In other words, what Mordecai was saying to his younger cousin was, Esther, if you refuse to get involved, you're about to miss the point of your entire story. God didn't make you queen so that you could live the good life. He made you queen so that he could use you to save his people. And hearing his rebuke, Esther finally comes to her senses. And in verses 15 to 16, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, 
I perish. And with that resolve, Esther approaches the king uninvited. But instead of having her killed for her insolence, he shows her favor and promises to give her whatever she wants. And as we saw in last week's message, she shrewdly doesn't make her request right then, but instead invites him and Haman to this banquet that evening. And so at the banquet, once again, the king says, ask me whatever you want up to half my kingdom, it's yours, my queen. But again, she doesn't make her request known right away and says, come back tomorrow evening for a second banquet I will throw in your honor. And then I'll let you know what's on my heart. And as we saw last week, that same night, coincidentally, the king can't fall asleep. And coincidentally, he asked for the book of the record of his reign to be read. And coincidentally, they happened to just open it up. You know, it's funny because every time I visualized them, I I kept picturing these officials just opening up this book randomly to a page like sometimes we do for our quiet times, right? (laughs) But the truth is they didn't have bound books in those days. It was actually a scroll, you know? So you don't just open up to a random page. You actually had to scroll that book to a certain place. And it just happens by coincidence to be that story of Mordecai uh, where he foils this assassination attempt on the king. And he says, how come I don't know about this story? He says, what was ever done for this guy? And they said, ah, nothing. You didn't give him anything. And coincidentally, all night, Haman is building this. It's so outrageous that you just sort of wonder if it was exaggerated, but he builds this 75-foot high pole <laughs> on which he wants to impale Mordecai, right? And coincidentally, he walks in after this all-nighter that he's pulled, building this pole, and with his sleeves rolled up, went in there and said, can I kill this guy Mordecai? And the king says, you know, what should be done for the man the king wants the honor? And thinking that he must be talking about himself, Haman says, ah, you know, put on your own robes on him. Let him ride your own horse and put your own crown on his head. And the king says, what a great idea. Would you do that for this guy Mordecai? (laughs) And, And Haman cannot believe his ears. And he rushes home after having to be humiliated like that. And as we saw at the end of last week's message in chapter 6, verse 12 to 14, afterward Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, Since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. And it's at this point in the story that we pick it up for the message this morning. And it starts in in chapter 7 in verse 1 like this. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, and then here's the bomb that she drops, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? 
Esther said, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. I think in that moment, King Xerxes is overcome by two overpowering emotions. One is confusion, and one is rage. Uh, up to that point, Xerxes doesn't know that his wife is a Jew, okay? Because she's been hiding it. She drops the bomb and says, I am a Jew, and I'm going to be killed like all the other Jews when this designated day arrives. And what Xerxes realizes is that he has basically signed the death warrant for his own wife, and she is going to be killed. And it says in verse 7, the king got up in a rage, left his wine. So funny, he's always with wine, right? So he, he left his wine. I, as, as I, was, I was thinking the other day, just picturing King Xerxes going, hi, my name is King Xerxes, and I'm an alcoholic. You know, <laughs> goes, hi, Xerxes. And you know, so I don't know why I was thinking that, but it says, the king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. You see, the king is stuck in this really awkward situation, having to choose between the highest official in his court and his wife. And I think in that state of confusion and anger, he doesn't know what to do. So in this rage, he just runs out to the garden outside to clear his head and figure out what to do. Now, here's the thing. Persian law states that no man can be in the presence of one of the king's wives or concubines alone. And so to follow protocol in that moment, Haman should have left the room as well. But he doesn't do that. In fact, Persian law says, even if the king is present, no male is allowed within seven steps of one of the king's women. That's how strict the law was. In other words, you don't mess with his wives. You don't mess with his women. But in that moment, Haman is desperate. And so he breaks all protocol. And he stays alone in that room with Queen Esther. And what takes place next will be the final demonstration of God's orchestrated timing of what appears to be a coincidence. But is the hand of God that seals Haman's fate. In verse 8, it says, Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Haman is so distraught that he actually has the nerve to fall on top of Esther while she's laying on this couch. And so now he's laying on top of her right at the moment, coincidentally, that the king walks back into the room. And if you actually look at the original Hebrew language, the implication is, are you trying now to rape my wife while I am still in my palace? You see, we don't know what exactly what Xerxes was planning to do when he came back from that garden in that moment. But catching Haman on top of his wife made the difficult decision really easy. And so in verse 9 and 10, it says, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. 
He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Now, this is where it takes us at the end of chapter 7. Esther's life has been spared by the king. But there is still a huge problem. The Jews themselves are still not safe. And so Esther begs for the life of her fellow Jews. In verses 3 to 6 of chapter 8, it says, Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had advised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if it is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Here's the problem. In Persian law, if the king makes a decree signed with his own seal, it is irreversible. Even by the king himself. It's binding. You cannot undo it. And I think Esther realizes that too, and so she begs the king, is there any way to undo this law that you sealed with your own ring because I cannot sit by and watch the destruction of my people? Can you do anything for me, king? And the king realizes he is stuck too, saying, if my seal is on that law, there's nothing I can do. I'm sorry, Esther. It's binding. And so not knowing how to solve this problem, the king does something interesting. He says, Esther, write whatever law that you think you can to try to undo this without actually undoing it. And if you can figure out something to fix this, you've got a blank slate. Do whatever you want in your own wisdom. It says in verse 8, Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no, no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. David Klein's, I think, captures the spirit of what uh, Xerxes said to Esther very well in these words. As he says, Write what you like, says the king, as long as it doesn't overturn, revoke, or contradict anything previously written. Write what you like to Jewish advantage, says the king, as long as you realize that Haman's decree still stands. Write what you like, says the king, it will bear my seal. But remember that so does every other official document, including Haman's letter. Write what you like, says the king, for I give up. The conundrum of how to revoke an irrevocable decree as you, Esther, have asked is beyond me. But feel free to write what you like if you can think of a way to reverse the irreversible, okay? So have at it. Take your best shot at saving your people, but I cannot undo what has been done. And so Esther writes a law herself. And what ends up happening is the battle of the edicts, okay? You have Haman's law, and you have Esther's now, and they're going to do battle with each other. You can imagine the incredible tension 
in Persia for those coming months as the Jews were wondering how all of this is going to play out. What was going to happen to the Jews when that designated day in the month of Adar arrived? Well, in chapter 9, this is actually what ends up happening in verses 1 to 6. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. Say, this is our designated day. Let's go kill the Jews. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And so the law that Esther wrote was this. I cannot undo Haman's law, but the law I write is every Jew has the right to defend themselves. And so when the enemies came to attack, the Jews overpowered them and overcame. Once again, God shows his favor because what happens is even the Persian authorities, the governors, the satraps, all of these authorities of the Persians themselves ended up aligning with the Jews and not their enemies. And I think that's what caused such the lopsided victory. God helped them in that battle. In fact, what's noteworthy here is that it says only men were killed. The order was given for even women and children, but it's noteworthy that only men were listed among the casualties. I think that highlights the self-defensive nature of this killing. Is only when they were attacked that they kill in return to protect themselves. And in verse chapter 9, verse 16, it says, Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. As it makes it very clear, the wording is very important here, the Jews assembled to protect themselves. So it wasn't bloodthirst that they went out for vengeance. It was in this self-defensive posture that they merely killed the ones who came to kill them And out of that, the truth is, it was a bloodbath. And 75,000 of the enemies of God were killed in a single day. Now, there's a lot more that we can unpack here, but in a nutshell, that's the story of Esther. Let me just wrap up this sermon with a couple of lessons that I want to close this series with. The first is this, that with God there are no impossible situations. It's breathtaking to me how quick things changed in terms of the fortunes of the Jews. And I want you to think about how many dramatic reversals take place in the story of Esther. A young girl growing up as a foreigner and as an orphan. 
against all odds, becomes the queen of Persia. Mordecai goes from wearing sackcloth and ashes, anticipating his execution, to becoming one of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the entire empire. And even after Esther becomes queen, she approaches the king uninvited, asking him to reverse one of his own laws. And it seems like basically Esther is committing suicide. Yet in the end, she prevailed. And at the start of the story, the situation looked absolutely hopeless for the Jews. And yet, on that day of their genocide, they prevailed and destroyed all of their enemies because God was with them. What I want to simply offer to you is maybe you are facing a situation like that. Or maybe one day you will when the odds seem so stacked against you that basically it feels hopeless. Nothing is going to get better in this. Maybe some of you feel like that in your marriages. Maybe some of you feel like that in your careers. Maybe some of you feel like that in your spiritual life. Maybe some of you feel that way about one of your children. I don't know. You say, this is hopeless. Nothing is going to change this. But what we see in the story of Esther, as well as so many other stories in the Bible, is that when God is in the picture, nothing is impossible. Jeremiah confessed this truth in Jeremiah 32, verse 17, when he said, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. I think that becomes one of the great reminders to us from the story of Esther. Whatever situation that you face, however hopeless it may feel, nothing is too difficult for God. The second one is so basic that it seems almost insulting. (laughs) And it's simply this, that God cares for his people. God cares and loves his people. Esther is an amazing story of how God miraculously saves his people from certain destruction. In fact, the story of Esther carries such a powerful message to the Jews that Hitler banned it from being read. In fact, he ordered the Nazis, if any Jew is found in possession of the book of Esther, they are to be executed immediately. What happened in World War II was that the Jews actually ended up memorizing the book of Esther and would write it from memory in order to propagate that story during their suffering. But the truth is this. History is filled with other stories of moments when God's people were not rescued. Despite their cries, God didn't deliver. What about the six million Jews in the Holocaust? Where was God during that suffering in World War II? What about the thousands of Christians were put to death during the Roman Empire. Where was the God of Esther then when they were being burnt alive and thrown to the lions in the Colosseums? What about the Christians that are currently being killed this very day in the Middle East by ISIS? These horrific decapitation videos that have gone viral online. Where's the God of Esther 
then? And what about the Christians that succumb to cancer or killed by drunk drivers or other accidents? I think we have to wrestle with this. In the face of so much pain, doesn't the message of this book of Esther sort of ring like a hollow promise, like a false hope? Is God really there to save his people and rescue them in their moment of need? Elie Wiesel, a Jew who survived the horrors of Auschwitz and Buchenwald, uh, Nazi concentration camps in World War II, wrote this book, these memoirs of uh, his experiences in these concentration camps, uh, titled Night. And in his book Night, he writes, one day when we came back from work, we saw three gallows rearing up in the assembly place, three victims in chains, and one of them, the little servant, the sad-eyed angel. The SS seemed more preoccupied, more disturbed than usual. To hang a young boy in front of thousands of spectators was no light matter. The head of the camp read the verdict. All eyes were on the child. He was lividly pale, almost calm, biting his lips. The gallows threw its shadows over him. The three victims mounted together onto the chairs. The three necks were placed at the same moment within the nooses. Long live liberty, cried the two adults. But the child was silent. Where is God? Where is he? Someone behind me asked. At a sign from the head of the camp, the three chairs tipped over. Total silence throughout the camp. On the horizon, the sun was setting. We were weeping. Behind me, I heard the same man asking, Where is God now? And I heard a voice within me answering him, Where is he? Here he is. He is hanging here on the gallows. What Wiesel meant when he said those words was, Here in this concentration camp, as far as he was concerned, God was dead. God was dead. He might as well be hanging on one of those nooses himself because he had abandoned his people. After all, if God was with them, how could this unspeakable suffering be visited on his chosen people? But Wiesel didn't understand the deeper truth of the words that he wrote. You know, one of the statements you hear me repeatedly say behind this pulpit is that every book points to Jesus Christ. Well, if that's true, I want to ask you this question. Where is Jesus in the story of Esther? Where is he? Where do we find Jesus in this story? Where is this foreshadowing of the coming Christ in this book? And here's the thing is, I think the most obvious answer is to look to Esther herself and say that just like Esther became a champion for her people and out of her courage saved them, that foreshadowed Christ who would become our champion. And I think there is a valid connection there. 
But I want to argue as we close this look at the book of Esther that there is actually a more disturbing, unsettling connection. And that is not between Jesus and Esther. It is between Jesus and Haman of all people. When we look at the story of Esther, Haman is actually the villain, isn't he? And the story ends with Haman hanging on a pole impaled as a sign of God's love for his people and his judgment on his enemies. Haman is hanging like a curse on a pole. And that judgment of God in the story of Esther bears an uncomfortable and eerie resemblance to Jesus' own death on a cross. I mentioned last week how in ancient days the worst possible death imaginable was impaling. And the reason why that is is because it not only kills the person, but when you are impaled on a stake, it is a sign of disgrace. A way of putting the worst criminals on display, public display, to shame them in front of everyone. And the same was true of Roman crucifixion. The Apostle Paul understood the significance of the way in which Jesus was killed. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. Cursed be Haman, and cursed be Jesus, who hung on this pole. Jesus didn't deserve the judgment that Haman deserved, but he nevertheless received Haman's punishment because on the cross he bore the guilt of our sin on himself. Who could have ever imagined that this is the foreshadowing in the book of Esther? The lengths to which God would go to rescue his people is to put that curse that was on Haman on his own son to take our punishment on himself. That's why I return to that claim that God cares for his people. This doesn't mean that every cancer will be cured, that every accident will be averted. It doesn't mean that he's going to deliver you from every difficult situation, but the cross declares that in every circumstance that you will be asked to endure, God is for you. God is for you. So Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 32, what then shall we say? in response to these things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Philip Yancey writes, We can never fully plumb the mystery of what took place on the cross, but it does offer the consolation that God is unwilling to put his creatures through any test that he himself has not endured. I have spoken with many suffering people over the years, 
And I cannot emphasize too strongly how important this fact seems to them. In my study of the Bible, I was struck by a radical shift in its author's attitudes about suffering, a shift that traces directly back to the cross. When New Testament writers speak of hard times, they express none of the indignation that characterized Job, the prophets, and many of the psalmists. They offer no real explanation for suffering, but keep pointing to two events, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Good Friday demonstrates that God has not abandoned us to our pain. The evils and sufferings that afflict our lives are so real and so significant to God that he willed to share them and endure them himself. He, too, is acquainted with our grief. That is the message of the story of Esther. You know, yesterday, Betty and I uh, visited Harold um, at the hospital to pray for their daughter, Abby, and uh, I don't know if you guys know Harold personally, but he's this, I don't know, he always strikes me as a very happy-go-lucky guy. You know, just always has a smile on his he? He's not here today, right? I assume he's at the hospital, but very uh, happy-go-lucky guy and uh, very even-keeled demeanor. And so I wasn't sure what kind of state of mind he would be, but it was pretty heartbreaking to see a little five-year-old Abby there on that hospital bed with these tubes coming out of her chest and uh, lying there in pain. And uh, so, you know, we're talking about, you know, the specifics of the surgery and how things were going, how the night was. And uh, through it all, I mean, you know, Harold was just keeping his composure. Uh, And then just in one moment during our visit there, he broke down. And his voice began to tremble. You can see that he was holding back tears. And he said, uh, you know, through this whole experience, God has been opening my eyes to understand his love in a way that I really didn't understand. And then as his, vo- as his voice was cracking, uh, Harold said, um, what I wouldn't give to be in Abby's place right now. In a heartbeat, I would take her place in that bed. And he began to say, I'm beginning to understand what it means to talk about the Father's love for us. Let's pray. So we think about the story of Esther, um, it seems so cut and dry. God loves his people, so he rescues them, delivers them miraculously. And yet, as I suggested, um, as we look at the whole witness of history, I think the truth is not every prayer seems to be answered in that way. Not every trial are we rescued from. And it begs the question, so then what's the point of this story? What's the point of all those prayers? And as we look at the story of Esther and we see this vile Haman hanging on a pole to represent the love of God for his people and what he will do to the enemies of God, we fast forward to the days of Christ and we see another man hanging there on a pole who became a curse but this man did not deserve that death but because he bore our shame 
and our guilt. He hung on that pole for you and me. And the message is very clear to us through the gospel. Let the cross inform your understanding of your suffering. That whatever it is that God is going to invite you to go through, it is never because God doesn't care about you. God is for us. And as Paul says, what greater exclamation point can God put on that truth than to hang his own son on a cross to say to us, I love you. I care for you. I pray that that would be your prayer of faith this day for whatever you're being asked to go through in your life. As you think about this doctrine of the sovereignty of God and what God's will is for you, whatever the specifics of that will, know this, that he is for you, not against you. And he does everything for your good. And whenever you doubt that, what God invites you to do is to look at the cross and see his son hanging there realize that that is his love for you. You just pray that in your heart as the worship team comes to lead us in a time of response through these songs. Let's come before the Lord in prayer.